welcome to another episode of the Corrosion Journal interview series. My name is Sammy Miles, and I'm the Managing Editor-in-Chief of Corrosion Journal, AMP's peer-reviewed scientific journal. We're continuing our series on corrosion and health with today's conversation on the antimicrobial properties of metals. I'm joined by Harold Michaels, a consultant, and John Scully with the University of Virginia. Thanks for joining me today. Our pleasure. Before we dive into today's discussion, can you provide a little information about yourselves for our listeners? Let's start with you, Harold. Yes, uh, I spent uh, almost 30 years with the uh, Inco Limited uh, um, Metals and Mining Company that uh, mined copper and nickel and made alloys, uh, mostly nickel-based alloys. And uh, then I spent another 15 years with the Copper Development Association where I managed projects that uh, defended uh, copper markets and found new applications for copper. Thanks, and how about you, John? Well, first, hello, everyone. Uh, Thanks for looking at this podcast. My name is John Scully, and as many of you know, I'm a professor at the University of Virginia and the co-director of the Center for Electrochemical Science and Engineering. Uh, Before coming to UVA, I worked for Naval Ship Research Development Center uh, and I worked at AT&T Bell Labs and for the Department of Energy at Sandia National Labs in Albuquerque, New Mexico. Wonderful. And I'd like to start our discussion today defining what we mean by the word antimicrobial so that we're all on the same page. So can you provide our listeners with a brief description of the term and, and what it encompasses? And Harold, do you, you want, want me to start? start? I spent uh, a good a good number of years working on the antimicrobial properties of copper, but I looked at other metals along the way. And what we meant by antimicrobial is that the the copper surfaces have the ability to to inactivate and kill bacteria and other microbes, including uh, viruses and fungi. It requires no human interaction. And uh, it's just a passive system that's in place and works 24-7. Yeah, that's right, Harold. It's, a, it's a, something that's distinct from, you know, art, artificial man-made cleansers where, where you might have to apply it periodically every 24 hours and then it doesn't work uh, if you wait long enough. And so this turns on and turns off naturally, as, as you've mentioned. And uh, Sammy, I believe that antiviral has is, is got a similar definition it's a, you know, inactivates viruses. I don't know if it kills viruses, uh, as, as has been mentioned, but it inactivates a virus or, or it inhibits viruses. Um, and also the antimicrobial, you know, particularly pathogenic organisms um, that, that are harmful, uh, these uh, bright materials can, can inactivate. Great. And which metals have antimicrobial properties and what actually triggers those properties? I mean, does it just work or is there anything that makes it happen? And we can start with you again, Harold. Basically, the mechanism is not completely understood, but I think we have a pretty good idea about its mode of action, particularly with copper. We really didn't go into detail with any other material, but if another material is antimicrobial, I suspect it would have some similarities. Essentially, 
copper in particular has the ability to exist in two oxidation states and it acts as a catalyst and during the, when it's going back and forth between the oxidation states hydrogen peroxide can be formed the two oxidation states are cuprous and cupric uh, copper or Cu plus one and Cu plus two and the action occurs when the bacteria come in contact with the copper alloy surfaces. The copper catalyzes uh, the formation of a reactive oxidation species uh, and, and hydroxyl ions are formed by something called the Fenton reaction. And the unpaired electrons in the hydroxyl radical are highly reactive to cellular surfaces, particularly lipids and uh, it disrupts the cell wall integrity and interferes with respiration and metabolism and the cells uh, die. That's it in a nutshell. It's very complex what I said, but uh, you can go through it step by step and it does explain it, but I don't believe that's the full story. Right, and just to add, thanks Harold, that was uh, excellent explanation um you know the antimicrobial al you know we generally copper and copper alloys you know but also silver is uh thought of as an antimicrobial material and you'll see silver uh used in various applications other thing i just want to mention is there are a lot of applications where people have embarked upon antimicrobial efficacy where they've tried copper oxides or copper oxychlorides or some sort of solid species that in contact with the with a moist environment or like human sweat, if it's a touch surface, they will uh, release the copper ions. So you'll have, as Harold mentioned, copper uh, plus one and copper uh, two plus, and those cuprous and cupric states, um, you know, revert revert back to what Harold said. They 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 have this uh, function that they can serve to um, disinfect. But I just do want to mention there's about eleven patents I think on. Basically, like, for instance, even glass with high-touch screens and high-touch surfaces can have the copper oxide. You might say, why does the copper oxide work? Because it's, but it's already taken away. It's already taken, the corrosion step has already taken place. Like if you in, uh, embed something like the copper oxide. So you will see in some applications, people have used these uh, copper oxides. And there, the, the, it's not in the corrosion, you've got to have an anocathode and you've got to have an electrical and ionic path between the anode and the cathode. But when you have the oxide, you've already created the cupric and cuprous ions. And uh, so subject to the chemical stability, they can be can release the copper one plus and the copper two plus uh, in the right environment. And then if that environment dries up or goes away, then they would, they would stop. And so it's sort of stored as a reservoir that's available. And I, I, I just, just think that's the other part uh, that's missing. There are other kinds of things like the titanium dioxide is a photocatalyst that actually basically splits water. And so you get you get sort of the you get the oxygen radicals and oxygen and hydrogen out of that reaction. So that's an altogether different process than the warden we're talking here, although it is an electrochemical process. But the main source is the copper uh, ions from a corrosion process where you've got some cathodic reaction.
and semi-nautic reaction, which is the dissolution of the copper. The one thing about the, the, the silver that's really unknown is in some of the applications, why should silver oxidize to form a, a, a silver uh, cation? And um, so people have embarked on using like silver nanoparticles and nanoparticles will corrode faster than let's say a fat, flat slab of material. And so you can get nano, you can get this nanoscale corrosion where you release uh, silver one plus that might occur from a, a nanoparticle, but might not occur from a large flat surface of silver. Thanks for the explanations. How have we used those properties throughout history? Oh, well, there's a, the earliest reference we can find, at least I could find, uh, is something called Smith's Papyrus, and it's from uh, uh, 2600 uh, to 2000 uh, BCE, before the Common Era. And basically, Smith happened to be a book dealer. That's not an Egyptian, but he found this papyrus, and it mentions using a, a green pigment, which is more than likely malachite, which is uh, copper carbonate hydroxide, and it's used to uh, to treat uh, wounds. So there, that is one reference we found, and there are others after that. Certainly, the Greeks, the Romans, and the Aztecs had similar uh, reports found the, here and there about using copper chemicals and even metallic copper for uh, skin infections. And so these are pretty, uh, most of these uh, cultures are warriors and they were treating a lot of wounds and they found that they actually were, were pretty helpful. But the most recent work that I can find to reference copper was basically uh, during a cholera outbreak in Paris in the 1860s, they found out that uh, copper workers, which I assume we mean copper smiths, were not impacted by this, by cholera, but the general population was. So there are lots of reports. Uh, there's a famous uh, Roman surgeon that had very low infection rates, and he used bronze uh, instruments, which was quite common in that, that era. So they, there are things in history where people have used it, but this was before, they, before the germ theory evolved by Pasteur. So when once, once antibiotics came on the scene, uh, people stopped didn't they lost the the knowledge of using copper for these applications however uh there was a, a professor uh of uh nursing at in a hospital in Erie Pennsylvania named Phyllis Kuhn and in the late 90s uh, nine, uh last century did a study on uh doorknobs brass aluminum and stainless steel doorknobs with with their their maintenance people to show to show them how to improve hygiene, and they found very little bacteria on uh, brass, which is a copper zinc alloy, and lots on aluminum and stainless steel, fine materials, but they really didn't have antimicrobial properties. So that's that's how I when I found that paper when I joined the Copper Development Association. 
I decided to pursue that, and that led to the antimicrobial project at the Copper Development Association. Right on, Harold. I mean, I, I agree totally, and I think it's it's uh, you captured the history very well there. You know, just on the water purity, it's always interesting to me. It's kind of come full circle. But so when when the ancients used uh, bronze uh, for the for the water storage, you know, they had some uh, natural capability to water disinfect or water purify that they didn't realize, but was effective. Then later, and you know, in places of where plastic containers have been can have been used, as you've mentioned before, uh, they don't have this uh, natural uh, no human intervention. Uh, supply of the copper cations you know that you mentioned wounds and that that just underscores how you know since people use these copper compounds these corrosion products that just underscores the the, the utility of the cation even if it's already stored in some sort of oxide so they also found that that was useful for skin ailments as i recall that people would put that on various rashes and whatnot and then of course the famous that's a little bit later it's after all these so harold's right on as a He's a reservoir of knowledge on this, but the ship hulls, you know, so in, during the uh, time where navies were became really developed and speed was a was a factor, the the, the ships with the copper sheathed hulls, um, you know, could go much faster. There was much less anti-fouling uh, than the other ships that did not have this or that had wood. They were much slower and couldn't maneuver. And uh, if you go back into old history, in, in the uh, not as old as uh, Harold was talking about, when you talk about the Dutch Navy or the British Navy, they remark on how fast the British Navy could go with these copper sheathed hulls serving as a as something for anti-Fallon. Well, certainly the, the, the British uh, won the uh, won many battles because of the copper-clad uh, right. wooden ship, ships because they, they could go faster. And they didn't have the problems of uh, the Torito worm uh, decaying the wood in comparison to their uh, Spanish and French competitors. Yeah, I guess it, it's it's great. So people, you know, trial and error is a way we'd like to think of advanced engineering as, you know, designing our things by computer modeling. But uh, it's been found that copper interfered with bronchitis, poliovirus, HIV, influenza, cholera. And uh, a lot of these were by serendipity. Like the 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 copper uh, workers, probably yeah, coppersmiths um, at the time. I want to circle back quickly to the comments on water and disinfecting water um, if it's stored in copper versus plastics. Did you have anything you wanted to add on on that topic, Harold? Because I know John mentioned it, but yes, uh, copper certainly has advantages, but I I have not seen. I would say definitive studies that uh, copper is a, is is a good very good material for plumbing. It lasts for decades. It doesn't fracture in earthquakes and things like that versus plastic. But I don't know if the if it, the antimicrobial properties are really a factor because the, of the residence time of a of water molecules in a pipe flowing at it when people are drawing water for drinking or cooking or what have you. I, it just, it's very complex. And I think under certain conditions, you might get something, but I think it wouldn't be generally uh, something you could advocate that uh, copper plumbing would, uh, would benefit your 
your health because we're killing bacteria. Bacteria shouldn't be in potable water in, in the first place. So I don't really see the application there. Yeah, the one thing that I, I would add to that is that, uh, of, of course, I agree with Harold on this copper piping issue and the residence time. And and so in the in the applications where it seems to have worked, it was more water storage. And in and, and the example, so we have a professor here, Jim Smith, he's published a lot of work on this with this project called Maddie Pure. And it's for these very poor communities in Africa that can't disinfect their water. And it particularly affects children, um, you know, who get these, these um, intestinal track type ailments and stuff. And so what he has pioneered or what he has championed, it's probably not new as as we as we call it in science, but he takes a a, a ceramic pellet, you know, picture of something bigger than a hawk, the size of a frisbee that he impregnates with either the silver nanoparticles or as I suggested to try copper nanoparticles and also copper plating. And what he found was that as we mentioned before, the silver uh, seems to work by a similar mechanism, although some of the details are elusive. The silver nanoparticles worked very well. However, silver is too expensive for the communities to afford. And so um, I really tried to push um, the copper. And what they found out was that the copper was not as effective as the silver. And they seemed like they needed more copper, copper uh, cations, the cupric and cupric ions that Harold mentioned. And so then they came to me and they wanted to look up a battery and they wanted to basically corrode the copper at a faster rate because everybody knows you can corrode at a faster rate if you, you know, take certain considerations and make it a driven electrochemical cell. And so they tried that and then they, they tried to make the copper effective, but it's not as easy because that requires the human intervention that Harold mentioned at the beginning. That requires that you have batteries that work, that are, that are fresh, that are set. So that's right where that project stands. And so in that case, they do see it's a pretty direct effect when they, you know, they can test that by just dropping in copper chloride instead, and instead of waiting for it to be released from the copper nanoparticles. And they can see that they can disinfect the water that way. But it's making it work without human intervention. That's the, the real troubling spot. Uh, John's statement uh, about water triggered my memory a bit. And uh, I came across a professor uh, who was at, at, when I met him, he was at the University of Northumbria in uh, Newcastle in the UK. And he ran laboratory studies and field studies in his lab in the UK and also in the Punjab in India. And they were measuring E. coli in water. And they, have, they also have a similar problem, but it wasn't copper versus they, they used to use copper and brass in particular, but now they've gone to plastic because it's cheaper versus copper. And uh, it's it, not a problem most of the year when they have sunlight because they get solar disinfectants of water. But during the rainy season, when they don't have sun, the bacteria multiply the people are drinking the water out of the uh, the, the plastic vessels, and uh, they're getting sick, and they get so sick they can't work. So it's affecting their livelihood. But if they went back to copper and and copper alloys, which he demonstrated, they wouldn't have this problem. And just you don't need a whole vessel made out of it. You could drop in, you know, a disc of copper 
uh, and that would get you get give you some protection. But uh, he they they did measurements, and uh, he, they found out uh, in six hours that the bacteria were gone in the copper vessels, but they were still present in the plastics. And if you and I found people of Indian extraction tell me that yes, they remember their grandparents used to serve water in copper vessels, and you can buy these copper vessels today, and I actually gave them out at one event. They were kind of interesting, and uh, so the, traditionally they had a solution, but it's, it went away because of economics. Yeah, those are those are interesting stories, and that's great to hear that depending on how you're using the metals, whether it's as a storage versus if it's just um, piping with potable water, there is a difference on the effectiveness. I want to continue forward. Has there been more focus on using silver and copper and other metals with antimicrobial properties more recently? So with events like COVID-19 pandemic, where we're all concerned with viruses in the air and on surfaces, and has COVID-19 changed how we're approaching these materials? And we can start with you if you want on this one, Harold. Sure. I actually had retired before COVID-19, so I didn't have to go into New York City on the subway and et cetera. And I thought about it a lot, and I was in contact with my colleagues. And we had some interesting information on uh, speculations about COVID-19 based upon work on done on by Professor Keevil at the University of Southampton on on influenza, similar spike pro, uh, uh, structure of the of the virus, and we speculated that if it worked on that spike virus, it should work on uh, SARS-CoV-2, which is this very similar virus. And uh, I wrote a couple of notes about that that were published here and there. Ultimately. He was, uh, Professor Keeble was able to do an experiment on uh, the virus that causes COVID-19, and he did find that it worked as, as was speculated. And we also had done some lab tests, and initially there was, that we were in discussions with the EPA, and basically there, w there was a, a, a temporary registration for allowing claims about copper versus coronavirus. So there was something there. And uh, it's, it's interesting that even though COVID-19 was caused by droplets that, uh, and an inhalation of the droplets and people wearing masks, you could still see it applied in, in for touch surfaces because the droplets can land on the touch surfaces and the human hand touches the surface and then we're fidgety people and we touch our nose and our eyes and whatever and we get we introduce the virus into our into our system and become infected so there is a there is a mechanism for it to occur and we believe there would be applications for it against uh, uh, respiratory uh, infections caused by droplets. 
Right, right on. And we we did some work. Uh, I didn't. I can't claim to have claimed to have seen a lot of uh, citations on this. So, Sammy, besides our editorials uh, that we wrote in Corrosion Journal, uh, we did some work. We got some, as I mentioned before, some NSF rapid funding, which stands for like emergency funding uh, in result of COVID. And we we had some surrogates uh, of COVID nineteen in our hospital. And it was kept there. They have the equivalent of the, you know, these very secure rooms for the viruses, et cetera. But uh, one of the things we studied was we looked at the one of the look at the release rate of copper since it is corrosion and it is release of cations in these assay media that are often used by the medical community. And the real touch solution, as Harold mentioned, if you touch some surface and then rubbed your eyes, it would probably be artificial perspiration, either on the surface or on your probably on your hands to begin with. And so we looked at a range of those. We looked at a range from like almost 100% SA media to 100% the artificial perspiration. And by the way, in artificial perspiration, the virus lasted long enough that you could then say, okay, gee, what does a metal do? What does a plastic surface do? What does a mask do? You know, what does cardboard do? Because everybody ordered all this stuff by Amazon, of course, during the pandemic. Nobody went out and went shopping. They ordered everything through the mail. And what we found was, that guess what? More release. There was less inactivation from SA media alone, but there was more copper release. So what happened? Well, the SA medias are so complicated. There's a lot of uh, things in there that can be chelating agents. So there isn't much free copper. All the copper was really bound up by by a, a strong bonder that formed a ligand that forms a strong bond called that can that can do this chelation process. And what we found is an artificial perspiration, there was less corrosion, but there was more virus inactivation. And so it, it, it brings to the um, to the surface the idea that you need to we need to study further um, how we're evaluating these materials and what we're putting them in and how that compares to the real world environments. And so that was just one little small contribution to the COVID thing. Uh, a few other things are that are there. There is a large disinfectant business. I mean, you can buy Band-Aids that have silver dots on them and things like this. And there are companies that take basically on the fabric, they somehow impregnate one of these copper oxides or copper hydroxychlorides, and they then release it when they need to for some patient to release it. They claim that these are washable, which I find to be very interesting. So it must be and use some pretty advanced technology to withstand the wash chemicals and to still be available for disinfection. But I don't think as much research as as Harold has said as as could have been conducted uh, on the relationship of uh, something like COVID nineteen to these antimicrobial materials really was not realized because I think once it once and there is a mask issue as far as do you meet the if you have an aerosol with COVID nineteen would it have a residence time on the mask that's long enough to be to be inactivated so there's a lot of uh, needs, gaps, and opportunities, I think, there. But we think once it once people understood that it was largely transferred by aerosols, some of the focus shifted elsewhere. The whole idea of, uh, you know, how things work and how do you use them is, is absolutely critical. We did a lot of laboratory work on copper alloys, but we finally said we have to do a clinical trial. And uh, we did a small clinical trial at uh, North Shore University Hospital on a, an outpatient phlebotomy 
chair, which is basically taking blood samples. It was an infectious disease clinic. And we found we put in just the the top of the the uh, where the arm rested when they were taking the blood sample, and we we found that uh, there was less bacteria certainly present on that versus the wood surface that's coated with with a laminate of plastic, and that was highly contaminated. But I said, is this going to really help? We've reduced the bacteria, but what about the infections? We had no way of tracking it. So finally, we got the funding through the Department of Defense to conduct a clinical trial. And what we did is we recruited three hospitals, uh, Medical University of South Carolina in Charleston, the Veterans Administration Hospital nearby in Charleston, and also Sloan Kettering Cancer Center in New York City. We made seven components and put them into intensive care units. These are medical intensive care units. And these people are there because they're very, very sick and they're very prone to infections. It's not surgical intensive care. It's people that have infection. We made IV poles, we had the bed of the rail, a visitor's chair, and a couple of other items. Uh, out of copper alloys and put them in the, the rooms. They only comprised, oh, less than 10% of the surface area of the room. And we measured the bacterial loads on these surfaces, and we had other rooms that were the control rooms, the ordinary rooms with the plastic and stainless steel and what, ha what have you. And we found out we reduced the bacteria by 83% overall. We had no control over the frequency of cleaning. We just sampled each day, and that's what we found on average. And I said, but does this help? We finally got permission to track infection rates. That was in the third year of the, of, of the project. We tracked these infection rates. The doctors that examined the clinical data were blinded. They didn't know if if the patients were in the copper rooms or in the control rooms. And we, we found we, we reduced the infection rates by 58%, and the number was statistically significant. In clinical trials, they use a P factor, and if it's low, very low, you're, you're in good shape, and we were much lower than one. It was 0.017 or 1.018, something like that. So we had it a statistically significant reduction in infection rate in these uh, clinical trials. And that's the first time that's ever been demonstrated. That's impressive. I mean, that's a, that's a huge um, difference between the two. Yes. But it's interesting. <laughs> when, when, when I've got the docs, I've recruited them, and we're working with them, and they say, what are you going to do what, what do we do if we don't get any results or it doesn't work at all? I said, you publish it anyway. We, we're go, we, we, you, I'm not going to stop you from giving the real results from this trial. It, we've got to be ethical and tell people if it works or it doesn't work. And indeed, it worked. That's good. And building off of that, what are some of the needs, gaps, and opportunities in harnessing the antimicrobial properties of the metals? I mean, I think that's a clear case for we should have more copper and copper alloys on high-touch surfaces in hospitals. I think that would be an easy one, but other than cost. 
but um, really what are some of the areas? Let, let me that... talk about the cost. Okay, that, that's interesting. I, I had the data. We knew how much it cost us to make these, and these were handcrafted, okay? And we knew how much it cost to treat a patient, and I did some back-of-the-envelope calculations, and we're talking about paybacks that were in months. Oh, wow. Okay? It doesn't have to be a big, bulky thing. You just got to get the surface uh, covered. And it'll last for, you know, a decade or two. So right, there are ways of getting around this. And it, where do you use it? Your mind can go wild. Certainly mass transit systems. Right. As Howard pointed out, there's so many ways to spray, thermally spray and cold spray and, and different ways to uh, put some sort of a coating, even after the fact, on, on these high-touch surfaces, that it's really within reach to be able to do a lot of these things. There's really sort of been an explosion of technologies that allow you to coat things in the field, let's say, certainly in the factory, but in the field. You can even envision, you know, low temperature application processes where you could coat the keys on a computer or a copper mouse uh, or a PDA, you can coat that. There, as I mentioned previously, there are also these anti-touch screens and that requires a little more thinking about if you take a borosilicate glass or whatever the touch screen glass is, incorporating the copper compounds. I was thinking, actually, Harold, you know, you have the wisdom, all, all the field experience, but I was thinking that one of the needs is, you know, some consistency in testing. And maybe there should be a variety, so it isn't one winner-take-all. But, you know, the EPA protocol, I don't have to tell you that 99.9% .9 bacteria in two hours. But to me, that depends on what solution. So you do it in a broth suitable for bacteria to live in, or do you do it in sweat? What about wetting and drying? All the things that, that there are issues in atmospheric corrosion. Since it's released, copper is released by a corrosion mechanism, it seems to me all those things are important. Even the cleaning solutions, there's probably understudied. We're looking at this a little bit. If you clean a surface with glutaraldehyde, and if you clean a surface instead with bleach or just with soap, what is the outcome? How does that affect the subsequent antimicrobial functionality of the surface. These are all very, very valid points, without a doubt. But let me go back to the EPA protocol. Yeah, please do. <laughs> I don't know if, you know, what, what, what is the typical surface? What is the contamination on a typical surface in a hospital? Not a copper, but an, say an inert surface. Glass, plastic, wood. It's hundreds the thousands of colony-forming units. And I should explain what a colony-forming unit is. Basically, one bacteria, you, you take a sample and you off the surface and you put it in a Petri dish and you grow it under ideal conditions. And this bacteria doubles in size and then it doubles in size again and again and again. And then you can see it. And you can see that one colony came from one bacteria. And you count those things, and that's how you figure out how much bacteria is on a surface. We found hundreds to thousands to ten thousands, or even a hundred thousand on a highly contaminated surface. A thousand is ten to the three. The EPA protocol is ten to the nine. Do you realize how much bacteria that is? You can almost see it on the surface. 
depending on what you're looking at, you can see there's something there, but you don't know what it is. That's an awful lot. That's a really, really very rigorous test. I don't think you even need that amount of killing to reduce infections, but that's what the EPA wants to ensure that people are are safe. So they made it very high that only materials that could meet that criteria would be approved by them. But it's really not, you don't have to reduce that many. And certainly in the real world, we found out we reduce infection rates by a significant amount. So there is benefit. So more is better. And copper is very, very effective. But, you know, it's it still hasn't, it hasn't been taken up by society because of uh, initial first cost, uh, maintenance concerns, et cetera, fabrication concerns. But I, I think it has real benefits. It's a passive system, requires no human in- intervention, and it works all the time. Copper is a great material for these applications. It should be in, as I say, mass transit, but it should be in certainly nursing homes after hospitals. It should be in schools, public buildings, and it should be in your home. And there are so many applications, physical fitness facilities. You just name it. The applications are endless. You can just let your imagination go. And I can't think of a place that's really bad to put these materials in. They're all good. They'll all help you. It'll cut down infections. No, I I definitely agree that it, anything that you can do to help reduce the number of infections, even if it doesn't eliminate all, I mean, that's, there's so many benefits to that. And any time that you can do it, even in your own home, that's a good thing to point out that we think about germs externally, right? You go, you leave your house and you go someplace, but it's also around your home. Sure. Well, I just want to, you know, we don't really track in all total infection rates and they're really hard to get good studies that show you what happened. But I have something that was a, a government-issued uh, study, and it showed that in 2002, which is you know over 20 years ago, 1.7 million hospital-acquired infections in U.S. hospitals. Okay, approximately 100,000 deaths, and the cost to treat these infections was 36 to 45 billion dollars. This is the treatment cost. Just think if you took the money from the treatment cost and put install copper, you'd cut them down and it'd be there forever. It wouldn't be there for the one year. It'd be there for a minimum of 10, 20 years. Yeah, so it definitely it definitely pays for itself pretty quickly, as you mentioned earlier. We did another little project, a demonstration project, and we, the stuff for our clinical trial was all handmade, but we decided to do a demonstration project, and we did it in a Ronald McDonald house in Charleston, South Carolina, which was a few blocks away from where uh, we did our, our clinical trial at the University of South Carolina in Charleston. And because we used the lab for an analysis. And what I did is I gave purchase orders to companies to make components. And I got 
sinks made by LK, and I had we, hardware manufacturers involved, people making railings. So we had commercial products, and we outfitted the Ronald McDonald House. If you're not familiar with the Ronald McDonald House, it's used for the families and for, and for also when the children, before they go home, who are in the hospital nearby, so they, the family can have a place to stay while their children are getting going through some serious, usually cancer treatment or something like that. Or uh, it, it's really a very good mission, I, I, I must say. So we were really happy to do this. We outfitted it. And then I said, well, now we can't really track what they're doing. People are coming and going. But I said, let's measure the bacteria on these surfaces. It was the same thing as in the hospital two blocks away. So we knew what the copper surfaces and the control surfaces were, and they were virtually the same. Yeah, so yeah. we know it worked. Which is good. Um, it's great when you can kind of show that it's, it's working. For the interest of time, I'm going to move on to our last question, which is which areas need future research? And if there's anything else y'all want to touch on, on needs, gaps, and opportunities, you can roll it into um, this question as well. And John, did you want to kick this one off for us? Yeah, I think that uh, one of the things is that it, I, I think that there needs to be much greater study on the effect of alling elements. I know a lot of empirical knowledge is around and, you know, over 200 years of experience, maybe more 500 years of experience, 1,000 years of experience back to the Bronze Age, et cetera. But uh, I think that there's some exciting things going on with multi-principle element alloys. They're really shedding new light on what an atom does. So when you take zinc, for instance, just in Nordic gold, Nordic gold is 89% copper, 5% zinc, 5% aluminum, and 1% tin. And so zinc actually <clears throat> has interesting effects. It lowers the corrosion rate. Tin raises the corrosion rate, which might make it, you know, good for antimicrobial. But it's the idea of playing with these different elements. We're finding now in multi-principle element alloys that even things like short-range order can change the passivation. In other words, if you have five elements in an alloy, or even if you have fewer elements in an alloy, that the elements that you put in um, can change the ordering. They might like or dislike the neighboring atoms, so to speak. And that will change its properties, all of its properties, including color resistance, including wood oxide forms. And I don't know, Harold would have to say whether this is all marginal because most alloys with greater than 60% copper are, are effective. But I do remark that Nordic gold is not, you know, after it passivates. And Harold was the first one to tell me about this. And then we studied it um, with one of my master's students. I also think that the Fenton reaction, which Harold mentioned, needs more study. So one of the things you could do to a material is can you put in alling elements that accelerate the Fenton reaction? Remember, now we're not talking about release of metal cations. We're talking about the idea of producing oxygen radicals or hydrogen peroxide. So can you squeeze more antimicrobial or antiviral capability out of the same alloy just if you knew what you were doing with the elements? The other thing I'll mention is the cleaning issue. So I think that the idea of what surface are you dealing with, because in all these testing, we talk about how, hard, how high of a bar the, EP test is, the EPA test is, but in all these uh, testing strategies, we really need to know what is the surface preparation that's applicable. Obviously, something long-term in, in uh, public transportation might have some uh, 
corrosion product on it. It might be some porosity to that film. And I think all these things need to be understood. And then at last, I would say that things like chelators need to be understood and then how they factor into the different test solutions that we choose. Because basically the chelators can be a game changer if they tie up all the free copper. And so that really needs to be better understood. And uh, I'm sure there's a lot more issues. I think the dry inoculum issue is another one. So there are people that have done studies in, in, in the dry, so to speak, that aren't wet. Now, I would say that uh, with, with chlorides on the surface, like magnesium chloride, things actually stay wet down 50% relative humidity or less. And so I think that that needs to be considered carefully, like what's really dry and what's what's so dry, basically, that you can't liberate cations via a corrosion process? That might be one question. So I think there's a lot of exciting things to do. And I guess Harold could have a better ability of gauging which of those could have big impact and really move the needle in the dial as far as this disinfectant capability or which are which are really marginal that are not worth pursuing. The one thing we really haven't mentioned, which we we discussed offline, is I've always felt, and John John was very receptive, and he had, he was thinking along the same lines that basically we're talking about corrosion at a very very low level in an, in an environment, and this is you know I, I call it nano corrosion. You don't it's, it, but it is corrosion, and anything you can do to accelerate the corrosion process to make it a beneficial to mankind would be is what you're looking for. But you don't want it to be so radical that the component is going to wear away. So it's a balancing act you've got to play. And there's so many things to explore, uh, you know, as far as research is concerned. You could go on forever. But I, I think we've got enough to go out and 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 help right now with what we have, and then we can improve upon them with all of these other techniques. I think that's a great point. I mean, we yeah, can we'll start. start mm -hmm. We can start implementing some of this now as we as we keep looking on ways to improve and looking for future things to do. Um, thank you both for joining me today. If anybody wants to follow up with you later, if they have any other questions, what's the best way for them to get in touch with you? This is Harold. Uh, cu.microbes at gmail.com. Okay. Let me repeat. cu.microbes at gmail.com. Yeah, Thanks. and for me, it's John Scully, just JRS8D, as in Delta, uh, at virginia.edu. Virginia period edu. I'd be glad to uh, to receive an email from you. Wonderful. And with that, I'm Sammy Miles. I'm here with Harold Michaels and John Scully. And thank you for listening to another episode of Corrosion Journal's interview series. You can subscribe to AMP Podcasts if you haven't already on Apple, Google, Spotify, and all the major distributors. If you want to learn more about the journal, please make sure to visit corrosionjournal.org. You can find all episodes of AMP Podcasts on amp.org. That's A-M-P-P dot O-R-G. And we'll be back soon with another episode. Thanks for listening.